We'll come to the time in our service now. We're going to look at a passage from the Bible. We'll talk about what it means, why this even matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, beginning at verse 24. Matthew 13, 24, if you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 691. When you found that, would you stand together with me and I'll read our passage. Matthew 13, large black numbers are the chapters and small black numbers are the verse numbers. You'll see a heading above it that says the parable of the weeds. Let me read this for us. Matthew writes this, Jesus told them another parable. Jesus is speaking to a large crowd here. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. Servants asked him, do you, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he replied, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now skip down with me to verse 36. Where Jesus, thankfully, gives us a little bit more explanation. He left the crowd, Matthew says, went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. That's one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself, son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. Verse 40, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They, the, they will throw them into the fiery furnace, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then... The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is God's word. May be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing on this time and his word together. Spirit of God, I'm asking you to come right now and take this preparation that I've done this week and this message and just... Just ignite it. Just use it in an amazing way this morning to speak to each one of our hearts. You've spoken to my heart this week through it, and I'm asking you to do that same thing in each and every person here because I believe you've drawn each person here for a reason. You've drawn each one here, and you had a good plan and purpose for us to hear this this morning, and I'm trusting you to accomplish that. You, you say in your word, when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Well, God accomplished that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Knowing how to cook for yourself, cook something. Knowing how to make a purchase at a store. 
knowing how to read a simple map, basic personal hygiene. All of these things and much more, we would say, we sort of categorize these things as basic life skills, right? Things that we would say pretty much everybody would need to know at some level in order to be able to consider an adult. I'm sorry if I'm calling some of you out right now, you're like, I don't know how to, sorry. <laughs> Speaking generally, yeah. But something else that you might not think about adding to that list, which is undeniably essential to survival in life, I'm saying, is being able to do this, properly defining terms. Properly defining terms. This is an essential basic life skill, and it's essential because, for instance, think about it, how you define clean your room and how your child defines that. Not always the same thing, right? Uh, how a, a husband often defines cleaning the house, not often, doesn't often line up with how the wife defines cleaning the house. Those things are not always the same thing, which can lead to these kind of confused conversations, arguments, all kinds of things. You know, people are asking, well, wait, wait, you're saying your room is clean. How come none of this stuff is hung up? Garbage can overflowing. Or, or you're saying the house is clean. Okay, well, how come none of the sinks, tubs are scrubbed, and all your books and papers are exactly where they were before? They're just put in neat piles. That, that, and then, you know, you get the pushback from the other person. What? You wanted all that done? And then it's back and forth. It causes fights, arguments, on and on and on. We, we need this basic skill of being able to define clearly what we mean by things. So, for instance, in my family now, when my wife asks me to help clean the house, she makes a list. This is what I mean by cleaning the house. It's very helpful, very helpful for me to know. I don't step on those landmines. And in fact, now, uh, this Saturday, going to be 13 years married for us. By now, we just have kind of a shorthand, all right? We just, we just say, just clean like my parents are coming. <laughs> clean like my parents are coming, and we just know what that means. We're continuing in this teaching series, summer teaching series through the parables of Jesus this morning called Stories of the Kingdom, looking at some of the more well-known stories that Jesus told that teach us about what the kingdom of God is like, showing us about what kinds of things are valued there as well as what kinds of things are despised there, which, given what we just discussed about defining terms, that's actually really helpful for us, right? It's helpful for us to know, just as it was in Jesus' day, for what we've seen already now a few times, if you've been with us through this series, is that the Jews of Jesus' day had all kinds of different interpretations of their own of what the kingdom would look like, what it was going to look like when it came. That's what, they had these understandings. And so as Jesus, the king of the kingdom, comes to us, he says, a big part of his ministry is to say, okay, yeah, I know that's what you think the kingdom of God is like. Actually, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God can be compared to this. And then he'll tell a story to illustrate his redefinition of what the kingdom of God is like. And the parable that we're looking at today, often called the parable of the weeds, parable of the wheat and the weeds, Jesus is going to redefine the kingdom of God again now, this time using a story which sounds like, I don't know, like, like guerrilla farming tactics or something. I don't know exactly the, uh, where this came from. And, 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 and there's always going to be something beneficial. There's always going to be something valuable for us to grasp whenever Jesus describes for us what the kingdom of God is like. That's always going to be true, and yet I think today in particular, this definition Jesus gives of the kingdom is going to be really helpful for us because it addresses a question that comes up all the time whenever we talk about the kingdom of God. 
All the time this question comes up, and it came up in Jesus' day as well. And this is the question. If the kingdom of God is so good, if the kingdom of God is like this banquet you're saying that we all should be wanting to be invited to, this great celebration and party, it's this great thing, and Jesus, the king of the kingdom, has come, how come there's still so much evil and suffering and bad stuff in the world? Why is all this stuff still here? If, if, if the kingdom of God is so great and the kingdom is so good and the king has come, how come this world still looks so much like it did before he came? It's a great question. Great question. And in order to see how Jesus unpacks the answer to that great question, I want to look at our passage this morning just two ways. Just two ways very quickly. We want to look at the kingdom of God that is, and then we'll look at the kingdom of God that will be. Okay, the kingdom of God that is and the kingdom of God that will be. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again to this passage in Matthew 13, starting at verse 24, then follow along with me. We look at this next story that Jesus gives of the kingdom. So let's look first of all at the kingdom of God that is. The kingdom of God that is. If you look at verse 24 with me, Here's where the king of the kingdom begins his next redefinition of what the kingdom is like. And he says, it's like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now this is significant because if you look at the context of where this parable sits, it's immediately, right before this parable is the parable of the sower. And right after this parable is the parable of the mustard seed. These are two parables we've already looked at in this teaching series. But although all three parables have to do with sowing seeds, each one of them actually illustrates a different aspect of what the kingdom of God is like. They're all about sowing, but they talk about different parts of the kingdom. So, for instance, the parable of the sower talks about how different types of soil can affect how the seed of the gospel is received. The parable of the mustard seed showed us how something small and insignificant in the kingdom of God, God can use it to grow something amazing and large. And in this parable today of the wheat and the weeds, again, talking about sowing again, what Jesus is illustrating now about his kingdom is that in the kingdom as it is, okay, the kingdom as it presently is right now, he's saying there are actually two different sowers and two different types of seed. Two different sowers, two different types of seed. Let's look at how he describes it. Look again at verse 24 and 25. Look, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the, eat, the wheat and then went away. So the, the, there's a farmer. He sowed this good seed in his field, and then presumably, I guess that very same night, everyone's asleeping. Everyone's just gone off for, for sleep. Now an enemy comes and sows these weeds among the wheat. Now, we don't know whether uh, eco-terrorism was some kind of a big thing in Jesus' day. I don't know. Uh, there, there was a, a law in, uh, in the Roman law, actually, that, that forbids such a practice. So I guess it, this happened. This kind of stuff did happen. But the point that Jesus is trying to make here, the point I want us to focus on here, is that the seed that was planted originally was good. The seed that was planted originally was good. And these weeds are something that was introduced by someone else, by, by an enemy of the farmer. And of course, the sabotage, as we read here, is successful. It's successful because he sows the seeds while everyone's sleeping. And honestly, who do, who's going to go back and check? 
When you've planted your garden, do you go back the next day, pull back the, the, the dirt to see if the, it's the same seeds? No, of course not, especially if you've planted an entire field. You're not going to go back and check. So that's the first reason this sabotage is successful. The second reason that it's successful, though, is that what we see here is it's the kind of weed that was planted. It's not explicitly stated, but the kind of weed that was planted is actually also the reason that this sabotage was successful. The Greek word is zizania, is almost certainly referring to this plant called bearded darnel. Bearded darnel, which apparently is very closely related to wheat and actually is indistinguishable from wheat when the plants are young and still growing. You can't tell which are different. That makes sense then why we read in verse 26, it says, when the wheat sprouted and formed heads then the weeds also appeared see so it's not until they're basically ready to harvest that they can actually see oh wait there's weeds here but look now at the question that this discovery leads the servants to ask the farmer in verse 27 look there they say the the the, the, the servants come to the owner they say sir didn't you sow good seed in your field where then did these weeds come from now honestly i'm Believe me, I'm not trying to create controversy. I'm not trying to start fights for you on the way home or anything like that. And, and I'm sure there's exceptions to this. But I think it's true to say in most cases, if you've got to ask the question at all, at some level, there's a, a level of reasonable doubt in your mind about the person you're questioning. If you've got to ask them the question, did you this, there's some doubt in your mind that they might have done it. Are we with me at least on that? How do I know that? Well, because here, for instance, if I come home one day from work and our family car is hovering above the front lawn, eight feet above the lawn, you know what I don't do? I don't go to my daughters and say, hey, girls, is one of you levitating the car right now? And I don't do that because there's no question in my mind. There's no doubt at all that they're levitating the car. I'm not looking. I'm looking for a magneto or something like that. I'm not looking for my daughters. Because I don't think that they can do that. I don't even believe that they would do that. So what I'm saying is the fact that these servants would even ask the question, that they would even ask the question at all, means there's a question in their minds as to whether or not the farmer might be responsible for the weeds. And this actually is the reason that I'm starting out talking about the kingdom as it is and not, say, the kingdom as it was originally. Because this is absolutely the world we live in right now, isn't it? This is the world we live in, where wheat and weeds grow up alongside one another, where, where, where the, the good and the evil seem to grow up right alongside each other. We see this everywhere we look. And this was no less true in Jesus' day. He, they saw it as well. And very often what happens is when it comes to people's definition of goodness, then and today, they ask questions like, if God is so good, if his kingdom is so good, why would he even create a world like this where all this evil and wickedness exist? Why would he do that? And just like the servants in Jesus' parable, I'm saying that the reason people even ask a question like that at all is because there's some level of reasonable doubt in their minds that God might be responsible for all that stuff. You made it. so Clearly, you must have something to do with it. So again, verse 27, because their definition of a good crop doesn't match the definition of the farmers, they say, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? Which honestly, I don't really understand why they would even bother asking that question. Because what's the farmer going to say? 
Oh, shoot. Sorry, guys. I knew I, knew I shouldn't have used that bag that said make and train taste traces of weeds. I should have used the bag that said wheat only. Oh, next year, guys. Next year. Like, is, is that really what's going to happen? No. Why would they even bother to ask him the question? I think this is revealing something else. I think what it's showing us is, think about it, actually, in questioning the goodness of the crop, what the servants are actually questioning is the goodness or at least the wisdom of the farmer, aren't they? Now, graciously, albeit matter-of-factly, we see the farmer's response there at the beginning of verse 28. You see, he says, an enemy did this. An enemy, Jesus says, someone who is opposed to the farmer and who's set on destroying the good crop that he'd planted. That's, that's who's responsible for this. But then notice, the second that they find out the origin of these weeds, second half of verse 28, again, operating out of their own definition of what a good crop looks like, they immediately go into protective mode. They're like, okay, okay, you didn't plant them? All right, we got to get these things out of here, right? You want us to go out and pull them up? I'm going to go get my weed eater. We're going to get this stuff out of here. Don't worry. We've got to take care of it. But look at the farmer's response. Verse 29 and 30, he says, no, 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 don't pull the weeds. Because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. Which probably, again, sounded like either evil or foolishness to the servants again. They're like, wait, wait, what? You want us to leave them? That, you know that's bad, right? Wheat and weeds growing together. You don't want those things together. Why, why would you ask us just to leave them? But if you look at the farmer's response again, you'll see, if you look closely at it, he's saying to let them grow up together, not out of concern for the weeds, but out of a deep love and concern for the wheat. That's why he says not to pull them up. We see that, first of all, in the first half of verse 29, he says, basically, let them continue to grow together because by now, the, the, the roots, the roots of these wheat and weeds will be so intertwined that if you start yanking up weeds, you're going to pull up wheat along with them. So he's caring for the wheat by saying that. And it's not stated explicitly here, but the, again, in knowing the nature of this weed that was planted, the bearded darnel, that, that, that you can't fully know whether the plant is wheat or weed until it's fully mature and ready to harvest. The second reason the farmer wants to let them grow together is because he knows the, the servants may inadvertently destroy a plant that looks like a weed when it's actually wheat. He wants to guard his weed against being destroyed. That, that's why he's saying to let them grow together. Now, Thankfully, just like with the parable of the sower, we're blessed here once again with an interpretation of this parable. Jesus tells us what he's talking about. We see that in the second part of our passage we read in verses 36 to 43. If you look with me at verse 37 to 39 in particular, Jesus gives us something of a lexicon here, a glossary of terms where he identifies some of the elements that he's referring to. Let's look at that once more again. He says, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. That, that, that's me. That, I'm talking about myself, Jesus says. 38. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are the angels. Okay. Good to know. Thank you. Which reveals a lot for us, actually as we're trying to understand and apply this to our lives today. And no doubt, I'm sure that was true for Jesus' disciples then as well. But what I want us to focus on here in particular this morning as we look at this is Jesus' revelation of the fact that he's the farmer. 
He's saying, I'm the farmer that sowed that good seed. Well, let's just to focus on that for a minute. He says, I'm the one who sowed the good seed, these sons and daughters of the kingdom, and I was intending to have this beautiful harvest of wheat. Because what this clearly shows us is that the plans and intentions of God for his creation have always been good. His plan was to plant good seed, to have a good crop. And whenever we question the goodness of God's creation... By asking questions like, oh, if God's so good, why would he have this world where evil and suffering exist? What we're actually questioning is not just the goodness of the world, we're questioning the goodness of God himself. We're questioning his goodness, his wisdom. We've been asking that question. And what Jesus clearly is trying to illustrate here in this parable is that this world that we're living in now isn't the world he created. At least not the way he intended it. You can't look around you and say, why would God create a world like this? He didn't. Read the story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. We see that he created a good world and it was, he said, all of it was good. Genesis 3 is where an enemy comes and sows this seed which then destroys everything. That's the world we live in now. That's the kingdom that is. Maybe you hear that and you say, okay. All right, fine. Okay, so... Maybe God isn't the cause of all this evil in the world, but if he was really good and wise, then he'd do something about it. He'd, he'd, he'd remove it from his good creation. But again, that's ignoring what this parable also shows us, that God permits the presence of evil in his creation right now, not out of concern for the weeds, but out of concern and love for the wheat. That's why he permits the two to grow together. And just think of that. Just think about it. Although, like the servants of Jesus' parable, we may want Jesus to rid the world of all the weeds that are growing up all around us. How many of us who came to faith later in life aren't grateful that we weren't pulled up before when we looked so much like weeds? Or how many of us don't still, come on, display weed-like characteristics all the time? And maybe you are weed, but we display weed-like characteristics all the time and what if someone were to mistakenly pull us up on our definition of a good creation? We, we wouldn't, we'd be destroyed as well. Second Peter 3.9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some count slowness. He's being patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. What Jesus is showing us here, first of all, is that what is valued in his kingdom is a patient trust in the goodness and the wisdom of God. Even when we look around us and we don't, our definition doesn't match his definition right now of what goodness and wisdom look like. To trust him, to be patient with his timing and what he's doing. For his plan from the beginning, he says, has always been good. And one day, at the end of all things, when the time for harvest has come, his promise is he will remove all the work of the enemy. He'll remove it for all time and restore his creation back to its original design. So this is the kingdom that is. This is the kingdom we absolutely live in right now. Not God's original plan, but it's the plan. It's what we live in right now. It's our present existence. Last thing I want us to look at is the kingdom that will be then. The kingdom that will be. Where Jesus makes reference to this hopeful promise is first of all in verse 30. Look with me there. He speaks about this time of harvest. Let both grow together until the harvest. Remember, this is where time has come with the wheat and the weeds have now come to full maturity and have completely like revealed which one they are. And Jesus says it's at this harvest time. 
Here, now, where his promise of restoration for his kingdom is going to finally come about. And he'll gather the wheat into his barn. Now again, we, we have this explanation that Jesus gives of the parable in verses 36 to 43. Verse 40 to 43 in particular, Jesus reveals to us more of what this harvest is going to look like. Look there with me again. Starting at verse 40, he says, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. This is removing the weeds. This is removing the weeds out of the, the, the field. They, uh, they will be, throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. And he says, as he always closes these parables, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, two things I want to be absolutely clear about with regards to this description. First of all, by stating that the harvest has come, what Jesus is saying that, again, both plants, the wheat and the wheat, the wheat and the weeds have come to full maturity. That's when you harvest plants, when they've come to full maturity, which means now there's no longer any question there's no longer any doubt about which one they are anymore. You see that? And I know there's all kinds of like crazy stories on the news, all kinds of Netflix documentaries that talk about like people getting accused of the wrong thing, put in jail for the wrong thing. It's the, I know that happens, that's true. And yet, in God's kingdom, the true nature of every plant is plain to him. It's plain to him. He, he just not, he's not misclassifying anyone. And what Jesus' parable shows us, first of all, is that God waits until the end of the age, until the time to render judgment on the weeds in the kingdom is sown. He waits till the end of all time so that, along with being plain to him, the identity of the wheat and the weeds is also plain to everyone else. You can clearly see it, because now they've come to maturity. It's obvious which one they are. Second thing, by speaking in verse 41 about a day when he will remove both those who do evil, he says, as well as those who cause evil to be done, Jesus is again revealing the kingdom as it is right now, where, where wheat and weeds grow up alongside each other, where we're trying to live as a, a son or daughter of the kingdom means uh, that we suffer, that we, we have to deal with all kinds of additional strain and, and suffering because we're wheat, that that's, that was not his good plan from the beginning. That was not his original intent and the incredible hope that Jesus offers here. Because of this promised harvest, he's telling us there's a day coming when it won't be like this anymore. There is a day coming when it won't be like this anymore. That the hope of passages like Revelation 21 where he says that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Where things like death, mourning, crying, and pain will pass away. He's saying that's a real day that really is coming. I am bringing that day about, and I'm presently preparing now to bring it about. That ought to inspire hope in the sons and daughters of the kingdom for two reasons. First of all, because I know some of you have experienced horrific injustices at the hands of wicked people. You've experienced horrific injustices. And just, just open up your news feed. Look anywhere and you'll see this all around the world we live in. There's injustices all over the world that we look at. And the hope Jesus offers here is that in the kingdom that will be, he's going to remove 
every one of those causes of sin and suffering and bring about true justice at last. Nobody's getting away with anything. Those things that happen will be brought to justice. He will bring justice. And I know, I know in our Western world right now, the idea of a God of justice, God judging people, that's not a popular idea. We don't, we don't like to talk about that or think about God that way. And yet, I often wonder if that idea is only unpopular to people who haven't truly suffered. Miroslav Volf grew up in post-World War II Yugoslavia, which is where he was from, is now Croatia. He says this in his classic treatise, Exclusion and Embrace. He says, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Now, Wolf is a pacifist, okay? But he says, my thesis will be unpopular with a man in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them is that we should not retaliate. Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, he goes on, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked by the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captives of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception, did not make a final end of the violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. God's hopeful promise to us is that in the kingdom that will be, he's going to bring about an end, a final removal of all those injustices that we've suffered in the kingdom that is. The other reason this inspires hope for the sons and daughters of the kingdom is that some of us love this world. We, we love this life that we have right now so much, maybe even a bit too much. And so we actually struggle a bit, the idea of letting go of this life and going on to some kingdom of heaven, whatever that is. We're like, ah, I'd kind of like to do this, you know. That sounds cool, yeah, but I, I almost feel like this might be better. Hope of Jesus' story for you is in noticing that it's not the wheat that is removed from the world, but the weeds. We don't have time to get into this much at all here this morning, but the clear teaching of the Bible is that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that will be, is not some place that we go to at the end of the age. It's a place that God is bringing to us. It's coming here. Where God says, I'm coming to make all things new again. So that not only will the causes of sin and suffering be removed, but everything that's good, everything that you love about life right now, everything you're like, this is awesome. I don't want to give this up. You're going to have that too, only it's going to be like 10,000 times better. That's the hope of the kingdom that will be. It's not just all the bad stuff being gone. It's also all the stuff we love right now being even better than we can even imagine right now. That's the kingdom that will be. John 14, yeah, woo. <laughs> John 14, 18, Jesus tells us, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I'm coming to you, which means he's telling us, I'm not going to leave you here. I'm not going to leave you stuck in this seemingly endless cycle uh, where wheat and weeds struggle against each other. I'm coming to make all things new. 
And here, as well as in countless other passages, the confident hope that Jesus holds out again and again and again is that he sees our suffering right now. He sees our pain. He sees our sorrow. And he's coming to make an end to it once and for all at the end of all things. Where, where, where wrong will be made right when Aslan comes in sight, as Lewis wrote. Where, where everything sad will come untrue, as Tolkien wrote. Where the good plan that God had for us from the beginning will at last one day be our reality in the kingdom of God that will be. And in a way that can never again be taken from us. I long for that day to come. As we close this morning, I feel like I'd be doing us all a massive disservice uh, equivalent to a, something like pastoral malpractice, honestly, if we didn't pause to at least reflect on the fact that along with the hope offered in Jesus' story here, there's also a warning. There's also a warning. And the warning, very simply, is that while the harvest speaks of, of hope to the sons and daughters of the kingdom, it also undoubtedly pictures a separation and judgment for any who are not. That's also clearly here. And the question each and every one of us needs to be able to answer for ourselves this morning is, am I a child of the kingdom? Ask yourself, am I a child of the kingdom? There's, there's no more important question in life for you to ask yourself. And I know that can be a hard question to answer sometimes. Because on the one hand, lots of us, especially if we grew up in church, we got this idea stuck in our minds that we somehow have earned our way into the kingdom. That we've earned our way into the kingdom. So every time we think we haven't lived up to the standard of what we think God wants of us, we think that we've lost our place in the kingdom. All kinds of people I talk to every day are stuck in that mindset. If that's where you're at this morning, let me offer you, first of all, the hope that Paul offers us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He tells us clearly, it is by grace you have been saved, he says, through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Which means none of us are saved by our obedience to God. We're saved by faith and simple trust in Jesus' obedience on our behalf. That's how we're saved. Grace is something that can never be earned. It can only be received. But I know the question of the kingdom, am I a child of the kingdom, can also be hard to answer as well because the way Jesus tells this story here, it sounds like our identities are already set. You're either a child of the kingdom, a son of the devil, and our job is just to figure out which one we are, and it's just sort of, I guess we'll find out. And if that's where you're at this morning, I want to share with you the hope that Paul offers just a little bit before the passage I just read there. Listen, he says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Listen, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature objects of wrath. You see what Paul's saying there? He's saying, ultimately, there's not a single child of the kingdom who is not at one time a son or daughter of the evil one. 
See that? He says, all of us. We all lived among them at one time. We were all, by nature, objects of God's wrath. But then, listen to what he goes on to tell us. Verse 4 and 5, but. It's one of the most awesome buts in all the Bible. But, because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with him in Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms with him. Do you see it now? The great hope of the gospel is that in the coming of Jesus, God not only redefines the kingdom back to his original design, his original intended design, he also takes men and women who used to be defined as weedy sons of the evil one and redefines them as wheat that he will gather into his barn. If you know Jesus as your Savior this morning, that's your story. That's what he did for you. He takes rebels, those who are by nature objects deserving of God's wrath, and he redefines us as sons and daughters of the kingdom. And this very day, today, by putting your faith in Jesus and what he accomplished for you in his death and resurrection, you can know, you can know that you are a child of the kingdom. You can know it today. Elsewhere, book of Colossians, Paul defines this redefinition in another way. Listen to what he says. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. That's how God redefines us. He transfers us out of that kingdom of the evil one into the kingdom of the Son. It's my desperate prayer for each and every one of us today that our weedy hearts may receive the good seed. We may receive it deeply into an open heart and that in doing so we might be redefined now as wheat, hopefully awaiting the harvest of our King. Let's pray. I'd ask those of you, if you're helping me serve communion, if you'd come forward at this time.